Philanthropism's podcast with Rodri Davis. Hello, you're listening to the Philanthropism's podcast. This is the podcast where we try to put philanthropy in context. Uh, I'm your host, as ever, Rodri Davis, and this week uh, we are in conversation uh, with Dan Corrie. Uh, Now, Dan is the Chief Executive of New Philanthropy Capital, or NPC, as they tend to call themselves these days, um, which is a think tank and consultancy here in the UK that works on issues around the charity sector and and the ways of funding it. Uh, Dan became Chief Exec of NPC back in 2011, so he's been there for a decade now, uh, and that was following a varied career um, where he held posts in public policy and economics, including being head of the Number 10's policy unit and a senior advisor to the Prime Minister on the economy between 2000. 2007 and 2010. So I sat down a couple of weeks ago with Dan for a chat um, and yeah we had a good conversation. I should say I was in the latter stages of having Covid at the time um, so just be aware of that when you're listening to it or I don't think I sound too terrible. But yeah we're just talking uh, mainly around the the work that MPC have been doing recently about their Rethink Rebuild um, looking at what has potentially changed in the world of funding and civil society during the pandemic and what this might mean in terms of kind of what needs doing longer term and where some of the trends might be going longer term and so we discussed uh, lots of questions around strategy and kind of how organizations set uh, set shared strategies particularly and sort of move away from the idea of individual organizations each doing their own things to thinking about seeing things in a systems way and how that might work in practice linked to that we talked about collaboration and kind of how we get better collaboration between funders and between organizations working in civil society Uh, we talked about data which is a sort of hot topic for many people including MPC at the moment how we get better data within civil society how we get better data about funding uh, what we can do with that data we talked about levelling up so the UK government's levelling up agenda which is looking at kind of rebalancing some of the inequalities both sort of geographic and economic around the country talked about the role that civil society can play in that and perhaps why it wasn't currently playing as much of a role as it might be Uh, and we also talked more broadly about the interaction between the charity sector and civil society and the government and perhaps where some of the challenges had been on that and what we might do to strengthen that relationship and give civil society more of a voice. Um, So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. I'll be back at the end for a little bit of housekeeping and tidying up, but in the meantime, enjoy! Okay, great. So I'm here with Dan Corrie. Hi, Dan. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, well, great to have you on the podcast. Um, for people who don't know, Dan is the chief, exec- uh, chief executive of New Philanthropy Capital, or MPC, I think, as you prefer to call yourselves these days. Um, maybe the best place to start, I want to talk about some work that you're doing around the idea of kind of rethink and rebuild um, and where philanthropy and civil society goes post-pandemic. Um, but maybe we should start by just getting you to say a bit in your own words about what NPC is and, and what you guys do. No, thanks, Rodri. And, and, and the name is, is, is not much of a clue in a way. Um, so it is worth uh, explaining. I mean, so we, we work as a, uh, a consultancy and a think tank, but we're a charity ourselves. And our mission is to try and improve the impact of the sector. So um, that's about trying to get individual organisations improving their impact um, and the sector as a whole improving its impact. 
So a lot of what we do is directed at the sector, individual organisations. Some of it is aimed at government. Uh, some of the things they do means the sector can't have as much impact. Some of it is at the sector generally, how it uses digital or thinks about commissioning and working with commissioners and so forth. And we one side of our, of our house works as a consultancy. Uh, and so obviously charities and grant makers and philanthropists hire us. Uh, and we often do, I guess it's a lot of strategy consulting in a way. We use a lot of theory of change. We'll help them think about measurement frameworks and so on. And then, and then on the other side is the think tank work, which is, if you like, anything that's not commissioned by an individual uh, organisation, um, where we're trying to influence uh, the whole sector. And we do a lot of, uh, for instance, free resources for charities, smaller charities and so forth who can't kind of afford the consultancy. We do research projects. Uh, we have events and so forth, all trying to, as I say, with that aim of trying to improve the impact that the sector has. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, you kind of tend to spark a lot of interesting conversations within the sector. Um, and, and so just focusing on the work that you've been doing around rethink and rebuild, I think is the project's called. Obviously, you know, a lot of people have been trying to sort of think through what has happened in civil society and, and the world of charities over the course of the pandemic and how many of the changes that we've seen are short term ones enforced by necessity and which are going to result in in longer term shifts and you guys have have spoken to lots of people around the sector and sort of identified five core areas that you're focusing on um, and I just wanted to, to dig into those a bit first um the the first one I thought that was really interesting is is the idea um, of systems approaches particularly when it comes to setting strategy maybe you could say a bit about what you you mean there and what it means to take a systems approach to strategy setting I mean, it's a good question. I mean, we've been interested um, in, in a kind of systems approach to all sorts of things for some years, you know, and you, and you find, um, you know, a lot of people, be they a charity or a philanthropist, you know, are aware that um, a lot of what they do, in a sense, is picking up the pieces from a system gone wrong. Uh, you know, the need that you see children in care, people with mental health issues, people lonely or whatever. And somehow the system's churning these things out. And, you know, in a sense, yes, you, you can fund something to help the immediate need. But really what you'd like to do is, is help create a system which doesn't create those sort of outcomes. Um, and I think one of the things that, that becomes quite clear when you start thinking about that is that um, you've got to think about what this system is, how it works, and you're going to have to work with other people. And so seeing rather than your sort of own organisation or your own philanthropy being able to crack this, you're going to have to work with others. So you end up doing things like, particularly when you think about strategy, you do what people tend to call system maps. That can look a bit complicated, to be quite honest. Um, but are trying to understand how the whole system works, where the connections are, where the key places, which, which uh, if you like, some of those called leverage points that you could try and change something. And then you try and see where your organisation or your philanthropy is fitting into this and what other people are doing. And that, that I guess, is, is, is the key thing because, you know, with, with big things, in life, we can't, we're not going to change them on our own. I mean, just to give an example, uh, um, I'm, I'm actually on the board of St Mungo's, which is quite a, a big homelessness charity. And we, and we do everything we can for people um, to avoid them becoming rough sleepers. And when they have been homeless, to get them back into sustainable housing. But we can do a certain amount. But a lot of these people are going to need help with, with mental health issues, with skills issues, with family relationship issues, with housing issues. So we have to be joined up with awful sort of a lot of other organisations if we're going to have any impact. So that kind of thinking, which is more complicated uh, than just saying, you know, I'm just going to focus on this thing. I'm just going to do my thing as my organisation, the best I can do. 
because we all kind of know that really can't tackle the very big thing. So that's the basic basic idea behind it, Rodri. And and in practice, how much does it end up being about organisations still seeing themselves as organisations, but sort of understanding their position in the wider ecosystem and what role they can play? And how much does it start to shift towards kind of breaking down some of the the walls of existing organisations or even between sectors? Because it strikes me if you're thinking about things at that systems level and kind of working across organisations and sectors to set that strategy, actually maybe the lines that you've drawn around your organisation start to become less and less relevant. Do you, do you see that happening at all? Well, I mean, you're right in a way that's, you know, that, that's the sort of holy grail that, that um, you know, bigger everyone working together. I mean, we all know it's difficult. The, the way that charities have to survive almost makes them compete against other charities. They're competing for funding. They're competing for to be noticed and so on. And they find working difficult together sometimes difficult so I think the number the one thing the first bit you said particularly when we work with charities um, is to make them think of the the whole context uh, that they're working in what are what are the other players what are other people doing and therefore what can they do that can add value where maybe should they try and work with some of the organizations and I think even if you get an organization thinking like that that's very helpful. That's a big step. And then when they come to think what their organisation should do, it will be in that context rather than kind of ignoring it, which I'm afraid happens too often. I think you can see some of those broader things. I think particularly where you have place-based work, I think in those places where people, where it's a geographical thing, people are sort of more likely together. And the other important thing is, is that funders can make some of this happen. And I mean, a, a, a kind of simple example I kind of like to use, again, in the homelessness area, it wasn't anything to do with some bungos, but where some funders um, felt that a particular geographical area, um, it, it wasn't being very effective on homelessness. And, and the truth was that the, the council was doing things, uh, some church-based groups were doing things, some smaller homelessness charities, and basically they just weren't joining up enough. And, and essentially what the, the funder did was to fund a, a, a post, a, a person, as it were, who essentially coordinated them all, collected the data, each day would work out who was who was presenting as homeless, who was the best person to take them on, whether, you know, somebody needed some more help that a different organisation could give. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of massively complicated. It wasn't massively sort of rocket science, but it, it made the system work differently and more effectively. Um, and so I think in general, and, and, and funders can, can do have a lot of power and they can do quite a lot to bring people together. But it is difficult. I mean, one's not kidding oneself. You get more of this kind of strategic philanthropy kind of changing the system in the States, or at least the bigger foundations talk about it a lot. Um, we have a bit less uh, in this country and, I, and we would like to encourage a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, it, it does always strike me that there, there there probably is quite a lot of low-hanging fruit, particularly in a sort of local level or taking a place-based approach, it, just in terms of, as you say, joining the dots between things that are already happening, because often they are happening. It's just people don't know what everybody else is doing in that particular area. Um, so, no, it's really interesting to to hear that. Your mention there of, of the role funders can play, um, it strikes me that, that there definitely is a, a role there, and, you, and one can see what that is. But do you ever find or get a sense that there's still a barrier there in that there's there's a certain element of, for want of a better term, funder ego, which is, you know, that, that funders still like to have a sense that they can attribute the the uh, the kind of the results that are being generated in terms of outcomes to their specific 
money or their specific intervention. And that actually, to some extent, that's a mindset that needs to be put to one side if you're genuinely going to work in a, in a systems way. Uh, it's a point. And I think, you know, we, we, we work with lots and lots of philanthropists and grant makers. And you have, particularly on the philanthropy side, you do have to take into account, uh, yeah. you know, that, that people want some, some feedback. And I mean, I, you know, I certainly, you know, we've worked with some very uh, inspiring philanthropists who do buy a lot of this stuff, but they know partly what you said there, Rodri, about in a sense, you'll never quite have attribution uh, very directly. And also, of course, it will take a long time and it may not work. And even, even philanthropists who basically want to fund that sign work sometimes also think a bit of their portfolio should go into something where they can see an immediate warm glow. You know, so literally they did give some money. The kids have now got some food and they can see them getting the food and they can see sort of an, an, an impact like that. And that you do have to have some things like that. Otherwise, it gets very difficult. I mean, system change almost by definition is difficult. The system has grown up the way it has, not because people are stupid or mad, but because they're facing all sorts of incentives. Um, the charities are the public sector, different bits of the public sector are. It's why they don't all work together. Um, so it is difficult, but of course the payoffs are enormous if you can get it right. Uh, and you know, and then people have good lives rather than they have bad lives, and we try and pick up the the pieces when when they've fallen into difficult times. So yeah, I mean, you know, one's got to be realistic. And you know, again, I mean, working with lots and lots of funders over the years, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, some are very into this kind of more strategic kind of thinking. Some are very uh, responsive mode kind of funders. That's what they like doing um with not too much sort of due diligence and so forth um and, and, and i think the mpc view you know we'd like them all to be a bit more strategic but but whatever kind you are do it well do it you know you could be a bad responsive mode kind of funder and you could be a good one and uh, and think those things through. so yeah this this stuff's difficult um uh, but um i think a lot more people are thinking like this particularly in the kind of place-based working and and we would love i mean for instance let me give another example which is a bit depressing actually giving the spending review that we've had this week i mean you know we've been arguing very strongly that the leveling up agenda which is essentially trying to well it should be at least trying to help uh, more deprived uh, areas you know should involve the social sector that some of the funding should go to the social sector the social sector locally should be involved in what on earth should be funded it should join up with local philanthropy and so forth um and We've not been getting a lot of answers back from government that they're up for that sort of thing. We hope now Michael Gove's in touch, in charge of all this and his levelling up white papers coming. We have, we're told before Christmas, we've got Danny Kruger, who knows the charity sector well as his, pe- his, his principal private secretary, not his principal private secretary, his parliamentary private secretary. But maybe we'll get some of that. Um, and, then, and then we'll get system change in, in you know, levelling up should be about system change too. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd certainly like to to sort of circle back to talk about levelling up in, in a little bit as well in more detail. Um, it sort of brings us on to the, the second area that you identified, because we've been talking a bit about um, uh, collaboration, because that's obviously an important part of working in a, in a systems way. And one of the things that you identify as one of your five areas is around equitable collaboration, which I thought was really interesting, because I think often collaboration is just presented as something that is inherently kind of obvious and and good even if not everybody always does it in the sector but I think what you've teased out there which is really interesting is the idea that actually there are you know better and worse ways of doing collaboration and that they're not always that equal and the power within those collaborative collaborative relationships is not very well distributed 
Um, why, why is it, do you think, that the existing approaches that we have to, to collaboration don't necessarily bring everybody to the table on an equal footing? No, I, I mean, you know, I think, you know, again, you know, you, we're sort of pushing for better behaviours, but we're certainly not naive. And, you know, size <laughs> matters. Um, and when you get collaborations between smaller and larger organisations, which are hard even to start with, then the larger one usually kind of takes the lead. Um, and, you know, I think even the, you know, doing, doing the kind of thought experiment, just think about a collaboration where it's one of the smaller organisations that leads, leads it rather than a bigger one. And you kind of think, oh, that all feels kind of weird. Um, but often, you know, that's the right thing to do, particularly because the smaller organisation will often be, you know, I'm generalising here, but, but it will often be a bit closer to the ground. It will um, be closer to, if you like, lived experience or it will know uh, the particular area better. On the other hand, the larger organisation will have kind of more capacity for kind of research, ability to advocate, um, to, to bring in knowledge from different places and all the rest of it. So you can get a very, you know, a, a very powerful collaboration there. Um, it, and it, it, but it is, it is quite difficult. And, and to some extent, you're asking the larger organisation to, to not exercise its power. Um, but also the smaller one to recognise, I think, that, you know, that, that there are benefits to the big ones. I mean, one of the things, Roger, that I've found in the sector frustrates me more than anything else is the sort of big charity versus small charity debate that goes on. You know, small charities on the whole think big charities are not very good or evil or somehow a little bit like private sector organisations, but with a kind of charity name. A lot of the big ones don't tend to say this publicly, talk to them privately, think a lot of the little ones aren't very good anyway, et cetera, et cetera. And this is absolutely ridiculous um, because you know, we need both uh, and they have pros and cons and all the rest of it. But when they work together, particularly in the kind of way I was saying, it's very, very powerful. Um, so I hope we'll see, we'll see more of that. Um, but people have got to be up for it and both sides have to sort of play their role. And again, I would say that, that funders can play some role in doing this because a lot of organisations say, you know, we'd love to collaborate um, in different ways, but collaboration isn't easy. It does take some time, you know, and we don't get funded to do it, so we don't do it. And that seems a shame to me. And, and what do you think it would take in terms of additional resources and infrastructure? You've said there, you know, funders can play a role just by making sure that they, you know, provides presumably the financial resources to allow the smaller organisations to have the time and space to do it. But, but are there other things you need to put in place to help kind of manage some of those power dynamics effectively? Yeah, I think, I think you do. I think like in all collaborations, you have to have to some extent uh, an understanding of why you're collaborating. You have a bit of a culture thing. Um, and so forth. And you have to be careful too, because sometimes these things happen, you know, let's say the chief executive of each organisation, I'm just talking about two at this minute, get, get on fine. And they say, oh yes, we're going to do this collaboration. And the rest of the, their team don't quite understand why they're doing it. They haven't really don't know their opposite numbers and so forth. And then you might get a, a thin collaboration doesn't really work, works for a little bit. But, you know, it, and even if you just collaborated, you say, look, we're just going to do this for a year. We're focused on this issue. Uh, you know, and then we'll see what happens after that. That's that would move you, move you forward. Um, I think. I think one of the things that's been interesting as well. I mean, that not only have we had COVID, which has kind of influenced our, a lot of our thinking uh, about how the sector needs to change, but we've obviously had the whole Black Lives Matter uh, issue and a lot of more thinking about 
how do we support smaller sort of black led organizations um, that may not have been going for very long and so forth? And, and how can larger, they don't have to be enormous charities, how can they support them? And how can funders get funding through to them and so forth? And so I, I hope out of that, maybe we'll get some more of these kind of collaborations. Because I think everyone has goodwill to make some of that happen. But, you know, it's quite a change from the way things have been in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And and it I mean it always strikes me, I think, with that collaboration as a an additional element when you're talking about collaborating with groups or organizations that at least in part are there to sort of bring lived experience into the picture because that's that's obviously hugely beneficial, but it does introduce kind of additional dimensions to to some of the power dynamics. And I think there are sort of ethical considerations and things like that around how you do that in a meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I wanted to ask, actually, because reading all the stuff about equitable collaboration, it kind of struck me that it's close to a lot of the discussion around the use of participatory methods and sort of participatory grant making, which is obviously not just about organisations collaborating, but about bringing in individuals or communities with, with lived experience. Um, and I wondered whether that was something that you were kind of picking up as a, as a trend among the funders that you, you've been speaking to. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point, Rodri. I mean, you know, what I hope is happening, and I think we are seeing it on the whole, is the idea that grant makers should sort of decide uh, you know, what they should fund and who they fund without some idea of what the actual people with lived experience, the potential users of, of the service or whatever want. Uh, it's crazy. Now, whether the grant makers do that or they are making sure that the charity that they're funding has done that, um, you know, it maybe doesn't matter. But, you know, in the past, we have had situations where, you know, actually talking to, asking the opinions of the people, uh, the service, potential service users, the people suffering, what they actually want and so forth hasn't happened. And that is crazy. And I hope that is dying out. There's obviously then there's much, there's a stronger participatory grant making where essentially you sort of hand over the money to the people with lived experience and say, you decide how to spend it. We're kind of not going to do that. And I think in some places with certain pots of money, that is the right thing to do. I think it'd be very interesting in the sort of, a, a, a sort of attempt to try and get more money to sort of, um, minoritized group led uh, organizations that some funders realizing they don't really have that knowledge have kind of given it to a, an organization that's a bit closer to to the action who knows those kind of groups and so on and let them fund and that's getting closer to that thing um but i i, I wouldn't say it's always the right thing to do because i mean you know sometimes and you know, I, I have experience on this in uh, in public services you know through through other bits of my career you know, where you've had situations where a local council felt, felt a school was completely failing and the kids, you know, and if, if, you, if you have a bad experience at school, that's going to be with you for life. And they wanted to make major changes to the school and the parents would sort of campaign against it because they kind of like the status quo. Was that Would it have been the right thing to do what the parents said? No, it wouldn't have been. And so, so you sometimes have to think about those other issues. But the general shift to saying we must take account of what uh, the people with lived experience are saying, what they want is absolutely crucial. I mean, we've, you know, we, we see that more as well in, in evaluation. When you're evaluating a, uh, a funding stream or whatever, you know, there's lots of metrics you use, but one of them has got to be, uh, you know, how did it feel for the people um, who are experiencing it? So I hope that's a, that's a change. It's taken quite a long time. It seems to me when I was still working in the public sector in government that was starting to be a kind of mantra in public services i'm not saying it's made it that far 
And when I first came into the to the charity and philanthropy sector, I didn't hear that much of that, but I'm hearing a lot more of it now. So I'm optimistic. I'm in an optimistic mood this Friday afternoon, Rodri. Oh, well, good to hear it. <laughs> Excellent. And and you did mention you made their evaluation. Um, I thought it was interesting because one of the the other areas that you focused on is um, obviously measuring impact is something that's kind of at the core of, of a lot of what MPC does. Um, but I think you've sort of set that in the work that you're doing in Rethink Rebuild um, against the backdrop of what seems to be a bit of a shift amongst the, the mindset of funders towards taking more of a kind of trust-based approach and kind of, you know, focusing on things like core costs rather than programmatic funding. Um, and I think that the, the interesting point that you made there, I thought, was that that shift towards trust-based funding is a positive thing, but in our haste to, to shift towards that and to shift power down to the people who were the traditional recipients of, of grant uh, making and, and philanthropic funding, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is also a purpose to measuring impact. I mean, what what for you is, is are you thinking in terms of the, the best balance of those two things? I mean, how do we kind of give away sufficient power and make sure we're not forcing measurement on people and constraining them whilst also making sure we're doing enough measuring to know that what we're doing is having an effect. No, I mean, you, you can imagine that's something that uh, that we, we talk, can think about quite a lot within MPC. I mean, you know, trust-based philanthropy, basically a good thing. You know, we've, we've been very encouraging of some of the trends and we encouraged them uh, during COVID where, Funders have have gone for core costs, which we've always advocated for. They've been less bureaucratic. They make the decisions quicker and so forth. We always had a slight worry, and we do with trust-based philanthropy, but if it's going to be all about trust, there's a slight danger you keep funding the people you already trust and don't go for new people. And we had a slight worry that might happen during COVID. I think it happened a little bit because people wanted to get money out of the door quickly. And the natural thing is that you fund the people you already know because um, you don't have to do due diligence or anything like that. So that's a slight danger. But I think, you know, what, what, what's worried me about the trust-based philanthropy is that some grant makers are thinking, thank God, all that stuff that we never really liked about impact measurement and understanding the impact, we can give all that up. We go back to the traditional thing that there's somehow all-knowing grant maker just basically decides, oh, yes, I think this is a good charity because I've met them and they're really nice and I like them. And so we'll give them money. And we don't have to have... Uh, any sort of idea of, 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 of is the program actually working or not? And that is to let down the beneficiaries. I mean, you could be giving money away uh, uh, to organisations who are doing things that are really not having much impact or could have had a lot more impact if you've given it to someone else. So you've got to, you've got to keep that going. Uh, but getting that balance right, um, you know, we, we certainly MPC what we, you know, we sometimes discover when we work with funders that they're asking for all this information, all this data, all this information, they don't use any of it. They don't use it in their learning or to, uh, to think about their new programs. Um, you know, they're just putting a burden on the charities. And, you know, often one of the best things to do is, is, is you, you don't say to the charity, this is what you've got to report to us on. You say, how are you, oh, charity, going to know whether it's working or not? What are the things you're going to do? And they tell you and, you, and you know, you're satisfied with that. Um, and quite frankly, if you think what they tell you is a load of rubbish, you probably shouldn't give them any money. Um, so, so getting getting that that burden twisted round, I think is is very important. But also, I mean, as we were saying before, Rodri, that 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 understanding whether that program's working or not has got to got to include in the whole process both what you're going to evaluate and how you do it. It's got to include the people with the lived experience. It doesn't mean that you stop 
uh, doing some of your your other kind of analysis because um, as I, as I say there are many a many a program which if you ask the people is it working they'll say yes and if you do the data analysis you'll find actually no very few of you got jobs for instance as a result of this scheme that wouldn't have got jobs otherwise um, so you do have to be careful but but you know I, I I think we can merge these two things but so I'm a big fan of trust based philanthropy but I do have a worry that some people who never liked any of the impact stuff see it as an escape route yeah no it's 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 interesting because it's i think it you know as a narrative it um obviously understandably has caught um pace um and because there's a lot of positive about it but it's yeah it's interesting to sort of point out that actually there there are some some downsides or some people you know potentially kind of interpreting that in a way that that risks missing out on some of the benefits of, of measuring things properly um and certainly you, you know you're saying there in terms of capturing data organizations even when they're doing that aren't necessarily making use of it one of the the other areas you talk about is, is shared intelligence and a lot of that to me um seems to me is about data and not just the kind of capture of data within individual organizations but about how that is shared between organizations within the charity sector and i think in other sectors um what's your kind of vision for how that can be done and what the benefits would be if we were sharing intelligence in that way. Yes. I mean, I think, and there's a lot of reasons for it, that the sector is pretty data thin um, for all sorts of reasons. Nobody's fault particularly. So within, within the sector, I mean, just an example, you know, charities, for instance, have no benchmarking data to know whether they're doing things, you know, at a, at a higher cost per unit than other organizations, as an example, uh, we have a real dearth of data that we share about where need is, where the money is already going. And therefore, you know, if you're a funder, where can you add some value? And, but we found, I mean, this is encouraging, you know, when, when COVID happened, one of the things we thought we could do with the sector, we did various things, uh, particularly aimed at funders who were coming to us and saying, I want to help, what should I do? And we published various things. But one of the things we did was, was basically put uh, a lot of data together. Most of it was drawn from official sources um but some that was coming from uh, charities um and we just put it together and we put it out there so that people could have a look and see you know where did it the need seem to be where as far as one could work out was the funding already going and where, where who was being missed out and there was an appetite for that and i think i'm a great believer that the more information you have the better decisions people will make as long as they can you know <laughs> they don't get submerged by by it so i i think all that kind of thing uh is tremendously helpful and, and similarly we don't have it's quite hard to know how the sector is doing um you know we know that uh that the best data we have is the is the data that charity commission have that we all have to give as charities to the to the charity commission but you know uh, ncvo do their very best with it in their almanac but that's usually several years out of date by the time it comes out uh and there's only limited amount of information you can get out of that I think it'd be very powerful if we knew more. So then, for instance, you know, we could have regular um, updates on, you know, I don't know, how are, how are charities doing in the Southwest? How many have, have grown in the last few years? What, what kind of, uh, you know, has it been more of early years ones than older people ones? And that would influence what charities did. It would influence what funders did. You'd get better resource allocation, all that kind of thing. And just the last thing, Roger, I'm on a big splurge here when you get me on data. Um, government data government has tons of data we you know administrative data in particular uh, about us um and that money that that sorry that data you know can be used by the sector in many ways i mean we've we've um pushed very hard on allowing that data to be used to help charities measure their impact in a very sort of 
cheap and easy way. And the Justice Data Lab run by the Ministry of Justice has been used by lots of charities um, who work in prisons to try and reduce reoffending, to understand whether their programmes are working or not. And we've been, we're in, in, in current conversations with DWP about an employment data lab, and we've tried with health as well. And basically what that's doing is it's trying to let the sector, and not only the sector, other people too, have access to this longitudinal data, in other words, data over time, which allows you to know whether your programme did mean those the children you work with were more likely to get better jobs or not likely to reoffend, or you're working with them meant that they didn't turn up at the GP or, or A&E so often and all the rest of it. And that's that's absolutely crucial for, for all of us. And, and it's frustrating that that data is all there, but we can't get access to it. So I think, you know, we there's so much. And I think all of this data would help our sector be more impactful, which is what MPC is all about, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it always strikes me with one of the odd things about philanthropy is, I mean, because it's a, a one end, it's all about kind of individuals and their decisions about where to give. And there it's sort of this kind of inherently irrational element to it. But then at a macro level, particularly if you're a policymaker, you sort of want it to be a, a relatively good means of redistributing resources, you know, between causes and geographic areas. And those two things don't match up. Actually, just the provision of information that, that allowed people to see where those mismatches were might do some of the job of, of allowing them to kind of smooth out their own giving and, and allocate resources more effectively without having to force them, which I think is always the problem from the point of view of policymakers. No, I, 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 I totally agree, Roger. And one of the things, you know, we're, you know, we're a bit involved in, in, in kicking off and the founder is on our board, Fran Perrin, but 360 Giving mm. uh, has been, you know, breakthrough, I think. Um, and, you know, and I think it's encouraging that so many uh, independent funders are putting their data there, uh, you know, and, and that that has opened up a, a world of, of transparency uh, and information sharing. So that's one example. And, and I remember when Fran was starting that off and she wasn't quite sure would people sign up to it, et cetera, et cetera. Now she's quite a forceful personality. I'm not sure that's one reason it all happened. But, you know, actually, you know, it just shows if you do push and you put a bit of resource into it, some of these things can happen. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and certainly in terms of um, that sort of information about the, the distribution on the on the geographic side, I mean, it brings us back, I think, to the what we touched on earlier around leveling up, because it you know part that's obviously a big government agenda, and part of that is about kind of making sure that money is allocated more fairly to areas that have sort of historically missed out on on those. It, I, I want to come on to the you know what the role of, of philanthropy or the, the charity sector could be in leveling up, but do you think? Actually, there's there's some sort of need to think about the the idea of whether we need to level up within the sector itself, because it's obviously the sector has its own issues when it comes to uh, kind of not being very equitably distributed geographically or in terms of where money goes in terms of causes. Is that something we need to address if we're going to make a case for for the sector being an important part of wider leveling up efforts? I think we do. I think we do, Rodri. And, you know, um, I gave a speech a couple of years ago on sort of where are England's charities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was using Charity Commission data and trying to see where, you know, where is the, the more charities per head of population. And it won't surprise you that they turned out to be to be less charities in more deprived areas. I mean, it's not a massive surprise um, in a way, but I don't think we should just sort of say, well, you know, that's the way of the world. I think um, I think the sector can do things about it. I think philanthropists and grant makers should at least look at where they're funding. And if if most of their money is is going into areas that are relatively prosperous already, they should at least think about that. And I think the 360 giving data really helps us look at that. I've argued that bigger charities should have a look and see where their footprint is if they've got 
uh, branches all over the place and you know say hang on are we uh, are we got presence in some of these more difficult places um they then have some difficult issues because often the bigger charities their local branches will have grown up because there were volunteers or people who do fundraising and they, te- you know, they're not necessarily in all the areas you'd want. So they've got to think, are they prepared to cross subsidize a bit to get some of these things going? So I think you can see that I've I was involved. I was a, a member of the, the Charity Tax Commission uh, a couple of years ago. And although I don't think I convinced my fellow members of the commission about it, I was playing around with how about gift aid being a bit more generous in more deprived areas. If you gave to more deprived areas and less generous, if you were giving to the the, the leafy streets uh, and so forth. Um, and then, of course, then there's government in terms of its giving out of its its money. And, you know, I, I personally would have um, in allocations to local authorities, to schools and so forth. Um, I would have a, a much higher uh, weighting on deprivation than we have at the moment. Um, so there's lots of things that can be done. Um, whether the levelling up agenda now is the is the answer, I don't know. I mean, the analysis we've done um and, and, and published uh, and we've been looking at what happened in the budget this week you know first of all suggests that the, the map of if you like deprived areas and where the leveling up money is going are not the same um there's the, the criteria for where the money goes has been designed in ways which gives a slightly weird spread of areas and then of course at the moment the leveling up money coming back to our first theme in a way, is slightly about kind of tarting up the high streets and maybe giving you a new station or something, which is all very well and good, but it's not going to be sort of system changing for those areas which need uh, more sort of long-term funding about skills and education. But we've argued very strongly as well about supporting civil society because that's a key kind of thing in building social capital as well as dealing with issues of homelessness and drug addiction and so forth, which, which blights a lot of the sort of left-behind areas. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of that, I just wanted to, to pick up on it because I mean, you made the, the point there that, that a lot of the focus in levelling up is on physical infrastructure at the moment. And you've sort of um, said at MPC that actually we need to think about you know the role of social infrastructure, some of which I guess is about the role of charities and, and civil society organisations in the sort of wider social fabric. But as you mentioned there, there might actually be elements that are about new bits of infrastructure aimed at civil society itself. Do you have any sense of kind of what what those might be are they things that we've already got that we need more of or are they sort of genuinely new things that are required well i i'm you know i'm a, a big fan of kind of local capacity um you know uh, because you know particularly in an area where you have lots of smaller charities they do need some kind of organization to um bring them together to kind of represent them to the lo- local authority to health all the rest of it as we know that funding you know a lot of that disappeared in the years of austerity uh, local authorities who funded it sort of stopped doing it um the charities themselves couldn't kind of do it anymore and that i think is uh it's been a problem um and i think it's a it's a false economy because it means that you know one of the big assets you have in a in an area it will be your civil society your charities your community groups your faith groups all the rest of it and if you're not harnessing them um you know and it doesn't cost too much to to harness them more uh, you're missing something I mean it doesn't mean that you know charities do what charities do and they can be difficult to work with um they don't all agree with each other um uh and so so it's not always the easiest thing but I think it's 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 been a crazy um uh you know absence of uh, kind of using the sector and I still think government doesn't think about that enough but also I mean you know personally I would like to see the leveling up 
money that given much more first of all i decided more on deprivation secondly i would tend just to give it to those areas i might argue tell them that they need to have some kind of framework that involves not only the the local authority but some of the other groups together and let them decide what their area needs because you know we all know even in civil society you know what some places need is not the same as what another place needs and the idea that you can decide that in some competition run from whitehall which is essentially what's happening and leveling up at the moment uh, strikes me as daft and it will lead to uh, a waste of a lot of the resources so i hope you know let's say we've got a new man in charge of the whole leveling up agenda in michael gove he's usually a pretty imaginative sort of guy we've got some quite good got got um uh you know junior ministers and and, and assistants around in there we've got andy haldane who's helping out who's um done quite a lot of speeches about the sector in in recent times so you know fingers crossed maybe we'll we'll see a, a, a different approach which which understands um you know that if you're really going to get leveling up that means something in the long term you've got to build your social capital your civil society as well as you know tarting up the high street yeah absolutely and, and you know, certainly i agree there's sort of reason to be to continue to be you know optimistic and, and sort of pragmatic about these things i guess in, uh, it brings me on to a thought about the, the sort of wider question of the relationship between government and civil society and the, the sector here in the uk which is you know in the time even that i've been working in this um you know it fluctuates but in general there's always a sense that people people on the sector side wish that the government kind of understood them better and did more for them and probably on the other side a frustration that the sector seems so disparate and kind of speaking with a thousand different voices having come from working you know both in government and in opposition yourself what's your take on on that situation like do you how much responsibility do you think there is on politicians and policymakers to kind of make more effort to understand philanthropy and civil society and how much should there be on the sector to kind of explain itself better i mean i i i think you know there's there's this kind of blame on both sides i mean i do think it's a shame that the current government um and, and for a while after the big society thing kind of slightly imploded in the early years of david cameron there's there's not been it's not been sort of hostile there's a bit of that in more recent times to do with sort of culture wars and stuff um but it's not been massively close. And I think that's a shame. I mean, I think in the years I worked in government, for instance, Gordon Brown, when he's prime minister, had the Council on Social Action, which David Robinson, big figure in the charity sector, chaired. And, and there were things like that going on. And I worked in various departments like education, and we worked quite closely with quite a lot of the charities. Even when I worked on sort of trade policy in the trade industry, we talked to a lot of the NGOs. And I think a lot of that went. And I think it's a shame because... There's tons of knowledge in the sector about what's going on on the ground and, and governments and, and Whitehall officials, everyone should want to be absorbing that all the time. I mean, so I think and I, I, I gave a speech at our annual conference a couple of weeks ago and the bits that got reported, not surprisingly, is where I had a bit of a go at government and said, look, you know, we're here. We can, you know, we'll always be independent and so forth. And we're going to say what we think, but, you know, we can help with some of your agendas. And instead, you're sort of. You know, you've given you, you've tucked us away in DCMS, the wrong department. You've given him some minister, quite a nice guy, but he's got sport and tourism to do as well. Um, the Office of Civil Society has gone. Um, uh, you know, I, I, you don't really take us very seriously and you attack us on culture wars and and all the rest of it. And that's it. it, it you know, you're overdoing it. But on the other side, the sector has got to understand the political reality of of uh, of governments. And also we can't just say. We're civil society. You should listen to us. We've got to show we are in touch with the grassroots. 
we do have evidence for what we say. We're not just a bunch of moaners, um, um, you know, but we should be involved in the conversations. And, and I think so. I think it's a bit on on both sides. And, I, you know, I hope that will will change. Um, but, you know, if you want to be sort of, you know, depressed about it, I mean, I was like surprised. I mean, I, I was involved in times uh, over kind of budget speeches and something and so forth. And sometimes, you know, you'd look at a draft budget speech and you'd say, oh, you know, who, who isn't going to like that? And you think, well, they, they, that's that lot. They're not even mentioned. You think, well, you just put a sentence in to mention them, then they'll be quite happy. We could have had just a sentence in that budget speech, which is a very long speech, that just said, and of course, we recognise what civil society did during COVID. That's why we gave them 750 million I know that a lot in the sector think that wasn't enough, but, you know, you could have said that and we, we look forward to working with them in the future. That's all you needed just to recognise we existed and we got nothing. And I think that is that just kind of shows that, that there's no one even politically um, even thinking, oh, we ought to say something nice about the sector. So that, that's a bit disappointing. I, I mean, I hope things will change. And as I say, there's, you know, there's been some changes in personnel and that that may be good news. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and it, you know, the reality, as you say, is that it, to some extent, there is obviously quite a large dependence on personnel on both sides as well. I think, you know, there's been a lot of turnover of personnel um, on the political side, but also within the sector, a lot of the sort of long-standing figures, particularly in the infrastructure bodies, have, have moved on. Um, and you know, there's sort of a period of transition and flux like that. Obviously, requires people kind of rebuilding relationships. So it'll be interesting to see what the what the future brings. Um, listen, Dan, it's been great to have a chance to, to chat to you on the podcast. Before I let you go, um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. If there's anything particularly you want to flag up that NPC's got coming up, um, I'll obviously put links uh, in the show notes to the Rethink Rebuild work and and uh, the website where people can find more information. But if there's anything specific you want to flag up. Yeah, no, um, no, no, thanks, Rodri. And uh, a lot of the, the things we've talked about, we've got sort of strands of work sort of following them up. I mean, I think the other interesting thing, we've always tried to sort of push ahead on philanthropy itself. And a few years ago, we published um, a, an influential paper, which was called 10 Innovations in Philanthropy, trying to kind of look ahead to how philanthropy was going to change. And uh, looking back on it, it wasn't too bad, but it also created some big discussions. We've got a kind of new programme that's called Open philanthropy that in some ways is is picking up quite a lot of what we've talked about and trying to say how can philanthropy become more open and sharing and transparent and working together and so forth and I think that's going to be a really exciting bit of work we've actually uh, appointed someone to to kind of lead on that who who starts in the new year Um, and I think that's going to that's that's an exciting program so you know there's always tons of stuff happening at MPC you know get get on our mailing list etc etc if you want to know um, but that's a particularly uh, interesting program coming up. Great. Well, I'll make sure I put some information where people can find that as well. Um, just remains to say uh, thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast. Great to have the chance to chat. Um, and I'm sure, you know, at some point in the future, I might try and get you on and we can kind of catch up on where these discussions have, have gone to. Lovely, lovely, Rodri. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Great. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Dan for coming on the podcast. Uh, It was great to have a chance to talk to him. I'll put links in the show notes to places where you can find a bit more information about some of the things that he was mentioning that NPC have been doing and some things that I've written about similar topics. If you want to find out more, do check out the website for the podcast, which is philanthropisms.com. You can find all the previous episodes there and an email where you can get hold of me. If you do want to do that and give some ideas for things that we could talk about on future episodes of the podcast or people 
that maybe I could talk to and interview, drop us a line at that email address. You can follow me on social media in various different guises at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis on Twitter, also at Philiteracy if you want more sort of stuff on the theory and history of philanthropy. And also there's a Twitter handle for the podcast itself, which I'm sure you can find. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it. Um, do spread the word to people that you think might be interested in listening to the podcast. And I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.